listening to Europe's number one pro wrestling podcast, Set No Substitutes, bringing you the best in pro wrestling interviews, news, and opinions with Mr. Stevie Knight. Yes, welcome. Seconds away, it's night time with me, Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Stevie Knight, and then the other Master of Ceremonies, uh, Mr. Youngy, Richard Young. How are you today? You know what? You know, remember last week when you said that you were shit during the lockdown? Yep. I'm shit now. Oh, my God. Why? What's happened yeah. to you? Why? I, 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 I'm just not feeling it now. I'm not uh, feeling it now. Uh, we peaked at VE Day. Um, I want to go out. I want to see my family. I'm just a little bit kind of fed up. But well, it's all perhaps, good because you're here. Yeah, I'm here. And maybe it'll cheer you up today because we've got a final bit of dozy show today because uh, we've got Doug Williams coming up on the show. Uh, we've known Doug for years and years and years. It's going to be a really relaxed, laid-back chat. Lots of fun and excitement. So, uh, Doug coming up soon. Also, if you are a little bit sad, listen to last week's show, Richard, uh, because people loved last week's show with Chick Cullen. Uh, tell, tell people about some of the things that people have been saying about last week's show. We've had reviews from all over the places, even from ex-wrestlers or current wrestlers, who enjoy the products as well. We've had like people like Johnny Storm contacting us to tell us how much he loves it. We've had loads of feedback on our social media. That's at Seconds Away Pod on Twitter, uh, on our Facebook page as well. Um, just great feedback. Thank you very much for everybody who shared and liked and subscribed. Please continue to spread the word. But yeah, great feedback for last week's episode. Yeah, one of the things I have noticed about the show, which is going well, by the way, slowly, organically building. You know, we're not in the top uh, 10 of iTunes just yet. <laughs> Maybe another, I think we've got about another 9,550 subscribers to go, and then we'll be ro rolling in the promotional uh, consideration, paid for by the following. Uh, but uh, we are getting there, and the wrestlers love it, don't they? They that, do. That, the wrestlers love it because uh, Doug Williams said to me, um, it's his life. He's listening to stories that he's lived. Uh, and that's the whole idea behind this. It's to uh, get the wrestler's stories. It's not going to be one of these, and then you did this, and then you did that. Uh, we're trying to get stories of how, how they actually lived uh, and what happened during the time period that they were doing this in wrestling. So, yeah, great guns, going very well. Yeah, tonight with Doug, it is going to be, like Steve mentioned, a relaxed conversation. Uh, just three friends who have known each other for 20 years plus, just having a chinwag about their career. Doug has lived an amazing life, an amazing life. And we want to know more about his life rather than his achievements, don't we? We want to know about the life he lived in America, the people he met, the experiences he had, and the experiences we had together as well. Yeah, well, Doug's probably there. There was, you know, there was a few of us, the you know, uh, core group of lads um, that were kind of knocking on the door of trying to get somewhere in wrestling uh, from like about the mid '90s onwards. Um, and Doug was our hazard, I guess, to say the most successful of all of us. Uh, he did that by doing British wrestling, and he incorporated that British wrestling um, into modern day American style wrestling, and it worked wonders. Um, and that enabled him to get paid, travel, that's the important thing here, paid for by the promotions around the world uh, to go to Japan and America and Germany. Uh, and Doug's done really, really well. And then outside the ring, he's also very successful as well. So uh, it's going to be great talking to Doug today. 
yeah, absolutely looking forward to it. And that kind of links nicely with our topic of the week this week because uh, you enjoy a lot of great feedback for the Morecambe story last week, particularly. And in fact, it was the Morecambe story that kind of prompted Doug to contact us, wasn't it, Steve? Because I think he feels that he needs to correct a few things. But I, I, I think we got the story right. But he feels he needs to correct a few things. I'm not sure. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the topic of the week this week. So as Steve mentioned previously, there was a crew of young British wrestlers who wanted to take it to the next level. And a lot of them people met in a promotion called the UWA. In fact, Steve, on his first night in the UWA, um, faced Doug Williams or had, had an angle with Doug Williams, should I say. Um, so what we're going to talk about is the UWA. So firstly, Steve, what did the UWA stand for and how did you get involved? Uh, UWA was the Ultimate Wrestling Alliance. Um, now, obviously, I can only tell you um, what I know of how I thought it started, um, which I think is, is mostly accurate, uh, which was Phil Powers had a gigantic part in getting the UWA started. Uh, but from my perspective, um, in the summer times... Uh, after I'd stopped doing the holiday camps and things, uh, well, moderately stopped, I'd do a few weeks. And then what I'd do is I'd go off to Tenerife and uh, start DJing um, in a bar in Tenerife, me and a couple of friends, which was, as you can imagine, possibly the um, highlight of my life and possibly an entire show of itself. Uh, but um, <laughs> perhaps with video would be better. <laughs> yeah. As you can imagine, what we got up to there quite a lot. I've seen uh, photos. <laughs> <laughs> Not the good ones. Mm. Uh, but it's, yeah, fantastic time. Uh, and we had a little flat there that we used to rent out. And I got a phone call one day from Phil Powers saying, can you come back? I've got TV wrestling back on again. Uh, I said, oh, right, okay. Tell me more. And as it turned out, it was going to be on uh, live TV, which was a cable station uh, and a bizarre cable station um, at that. It had other things like topless darts, uh, the weather being done by a midget bouncing up and down on a trampoline. His name was Rusty. Uh, Rusty, was he? Rusty, yeah. Just yeah. bizarre. The only other thing that was on there, which is now incredibly popular, was Judge Judy. Uh, we followed Judge Judy and topped her in viewing figures, may I add. So, oh, the, um, oh, uh, yeah, and, yeah, oh. and, and porn as well. There was a lot of softcore porn soft on like, porn, TV. Yeah, soft porn, yeah. So it was like a semi porn channel very very soft and other wacky things as well uh but we'd got uh, space on this channel uh which was based at um oh what's the gigantic tower it's in london canary wharf canary wharf. canary wharf yeah london. and it was phil powers that was organizing it along with a chap called dan belinka who was formerly worked for wwf as a some kind of tv editor or production i believe uh, but he definitely worked for WWF in some capacity. And another chap called Paul Martin, who was putting the money into it. Uh, so I go back to England. Uh, they'd had one show previously. Uh, and then their next show, their big show, which is going to be the TV taping, uh, was going to be at Crystal Palace. Um, and it had a very mixed bag uh, of talent involved. Some great talent, some absolutely rotten talent. It was the most bizarre booking of people in the world. Uh, they flew over guys from Japan. Grand Naninwa was there. Uh, Tiger Mask 3 was there. Um, and, of course, they also flew over, um, which at the time, 
he wasn't known at all, uh, which was Christopher Daniels. Um, and I think overall it was a decent show, a decent turnout in the crowd. And I thought it looked pretty good. You was there, youngie. I was there, yeah. It was a long taping. It went on for about three or four hours. And by the end of the night, the crowd were a bit tired. They were a bit tired by the end of the night. But it was enjoyable and it was an eye-opener. I mean, for me, I'd never seen or even heard of many of the people on the show. I'd heard of you and I'd heard the Americans. I knew Chris Daniels because he'd been on Shotgun or something like that, facing Takamishinoku. And I always remember that because he actually had a good match with him on Shotgun. So I remember that. Um, but the setup was fantastic. It was um, nothing like you'd seen in a hall show or anything like that. It was a proper television setup with a massive stage way, and there was like laser screens and things like that. It looks impressive, to be fair. It did, and um, it did well um, and when it came out on the TV. And I remember because it was the first proper TV that I'd done. I'd done one um, a couple of years previous where I got squashed by um, Flash Barker, but it never actually got shown on TV. It was supposed to be, but it never actually got shown. So it was the first one that I'd ever done where it actually got put onto TV. Um, and I was really pleased with how it looked at the time. I was completely dedicated to wrestling. It was a 24 hours a day thing. Uh, always thinking of new spots, you know, in the gym all the time. Uh, I had this very healthy tan. Um, I was in decent shape. I had bleach blonde hair. Uh, I look like a wrestler. I look, you know, even if you listen to the show, you'll never hear me much talk about how good I was at wrestling. It's quite the opposite. Uh, but at that time, uh, I was definitely at my peak, I thought, um, of wrestling. And I was really pleased with how it turned out. I was on with Jody Fleisch, who made me look absolutely awesome. Everything I did, he took right on the back of his head and made all my moves look great. Uh, but we were, you know, the stuff we did together was great. And then later on in the taping, uh, I started my feud with Doug Williams, which is the very first time I've ever met Doug. Yeah, was that also the first time you met Jody as well? It was, all those guys. They just kind of left Hammerlock. So uh, Johnny Storm, Jody, Alex Shane, uh, all of those guys. The only guys that I really knew from there uh, was Jason Cross, Phil Powers, and the guys that you would see regularly on what I would call the normal shows, because Hammerlock at that time, was kind of viewed as a outlaw outfit kind of thing because those guys could only wrestle for Hammerlock. They weren't really allowed, apart from I've learnt later that quite a few of them did shows for Neil Evans and guys like that, but it was kind of seen that they only wrestled for Hammerlock and nobody really met them. So this was kind of the coming out party where everyone got together for this UWA um, and what you know, the talent that it produced, not UWA, but a lot of the talent that, that went on from UWA, because it didn't last very long, uh, has gone on to do great things. So the first TV taping got done at Palace and, and it had some decent feedback and it looked great onto television. Um, did you at that point, did you feel like a TV star? Yes, yes, I did. Absolutely. Apart from um, I watched my match with Jody and I was DJing. Um, in a little tiny pub. Uh, and I remember trying to ask them to if they could put the TV on. And so there I was on TV, proper TV. You know, you could find it through the remote control and you was on telly. And there I was earning 50 quid as a DJ um, on this night that it was on. I think it was on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, and it was on uh, kind of winter time, so there wasn't much wrestling going on. 
And there I was on TV uh, thinking I was an absolute superstar and doing a bit of DJing in this pub. So, yeah, but uh, at the time, you know, I was young. And uh, even before doing that, I thought I was a superstar wrestler. So certainly when that happened, I thought I was world famous. So from there, from Bristol Palace, then things kind of took a bit of a, not maybe not a downturn, but I'll let you describe because you went to Black didn't you for a, for a set of tv tapings yeah we all kind of said because a lot of us had done blackpool before and it had never really worked it was it was a little bit naff crowds weren't good but they kind of insisted on going to blackpool i can't remember the ins and outs of it maybe we did it for about a month um every every weekend for about a month possibly maybe three weeks um and we did an afternoon show and an evening show uh, bearing in mind this was being taped for tv uh, like a three camera setup, and some of the afternoon shows, you know, possibly had 40 people in the building, which was just absolutely pathetic. Um, and then the evening shows, you got anywhere from 100 people to maybe 300 people. Um, and, you know, the amount of matches that were going on was absolutely crazy because they were just filming, filming, filming to get enough for the TV. Uh, and the, the cast of characters that were being booked was just absolutely unbelievable. And you, you'd kind of shake your head at like, we're on, okay, it's not the greatest TV station in the world, but it is TV. Um, and, it, you know, it, at the time it was great. I thought it was absolutely amazing that we were doing this. Uh, I thought I was a superstar. I'd like to classify I was not a superstar. I personally thought at the time I was not. <laughs> when, I, when, when I look back, it was pathetic, you know, what I was thinking of myself. But, you know, we're all young and we, we grow and learn. But, um, you know, you'd look at some of these people walking past. Romper Stomper, who was like a neo-Nazi. <laughs> you know, it's just, just, just amazing. Werra, who was, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who he was. He must have been a friend of... Dan Belinka or something, and he'd never wrestled. It was I was going to talk to you. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about Werra because you told me this brilliant story about Werra's TV match, didn't you? Please, please tell me that. Please share this story because this always makes me laugh. Well, Werra was on with Bully Boy Briggs, who was a guy that did a lot of holiday camp wrestling. Uh, and I used to go away with him a lot. Darren from Doncaster, nice guy, nice, nice fella. And uh, I got Darren booked on these shows. Um, and he was on on one of these afternoon shows with Wera. Uh, Wera never wrestled, doesn't didn't know have a clue what he was doing at all. Wait, just before we, because not a lot of people might be listening to this, not heard or seen of Wera. Just kind of describe how he looked, what he was wearing, where he came from, etc. <laughs> well, I believe he was from the Congo. That's where I believe he was from, and he was a friend, obviously of the biggest star in the UWA, Big Papa T. Ah, we'll talk about Big Papa T in a moment. Yeah. Big Papa T, who was a guy, well, I don't know. I, it's so hard to describe. You need, you need to go on YouTube and have a look for Big Papa T. He was a guy that went out in a black singlet, a gimp mask, <laughs> li- literally a gimp <laughs> mask, didn't know how to wrestle at all, but was pushed to the moon as the top star. And people were saying, you know, not people, not the crowd, but like the, the people backstage in the office were saying how great it was. He, he was like Big Daddy for the modern age, really. And obviously this this wearer was a friend of his. Um, so he was obviously from the Congo. So he rocks up and he goes out to wrestle in like a cycling outfit. Like you see people who go out cycling, 
full cycling outfit, uh, great big black hairy back, um, a pair of amateur wrestling boots. On television, this is. Never wrestled in his life. So he's coming down to the ring. And his opponent, Wera. So, and at this time, I was helping out backstage a little bit. So I've got the headset on that can contact everybody in the changing rooms. So they're going through the match. It's absolutely dire. And the finish, which I don't know if it was supposed to be the finish or not, uh, Wera kind of gets Bully Boy Briggs in a front face lock, lifts him off the ground... So Bully Boy Briggs starts tapping like crazy to finish, and nothing happens. So he keeps keeps it on, nothing happens. <laughs> so he keeps this front face lock on, and the referees kind of stood there looking at them both. Bully Boy Briggs' legs are like dangling on the floor like the Wizard of Oz, like the witch under the house and the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so he, go, he kind of goes limp, and then nothing happens. And at this point, literally, it had been two or three minutes where this had gone on. The crowd had completely switched off. Everyone stood in the ring while this guy has just got this guy in a front face lock. And I'm thinking, it's got to end in a minute. But it didn't. It just kept going. <laughs> and it kept going. And it kept going. So I get onto the headset to try and tell everyone to come down and watch this because it's so funny before it ends. But the headset wouldn't work. So I literally had time to run from watching the watching the match all the way up the stairs to go in the changing rooms and say, look at this, look at this, this is so funny. And everybody ran down with me and we all got down and they were still in this move <laughs> with Wera, with Bully Boy Briggs in a front face lock. And he didn't understand the referee telling him that he's, he's finished, let go. So he just kept it on. And Jason Cross was there, and a few of us were there, and we were just laughing our bollocks off. And he must have kept this move on for about eight minutes. <laughs> it was just awkward. It was the most horrendous thing I've ever seen in my life. And finally, and I don't know what made him, he let go. He fell on the, this was the funniest bit. He let go, he fell on the floor. The match is over. They play some music. And then for some reason, that nobody knows apart from him. He did a leg drop on him like Hulk Hogan. He hit the ropes. He ran across. <laughs> and he did the world's most god-awful leg drop. And then <laughs> land, landed his ass right on his face. And broke his nose. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and it was just... It, it was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. But again, you know, for, for, for 20 years later to tell on a podcast... Just an amazing story. It also had um, Power Slam Magazine's worst match of the year 2000, I believe. Yeah. Um, featuring yeah. the uh, above-mentioned Big Papa T and Tom Munro, which later you exploited in a storyline. Can you just tell us about that? I did, yeah. Tom Munro, again, absolutely no idea where they got the guy from. He was a probably 55-year-old man. Uh, who I don't think I'd ever wrestled before. Uh, nice guy, really nice guy, but where they got him from, I have no idea. And it was in Power Slam magazine as voted the worst match ever, or worst match of the year. It was a scrapyard match, wasn't it? It was this yeah. really scrapyard match. Yeah, yeah they, if... because, because they didn't have enough matches filmed, what they would do is have these matches where they'd get this Tom Monroe and a few other people. I can't remember. I never had issue to skip through them. 
and they'd go to a scrapyard and film these guys scrapping amongst cars and things like that because obviously they didn't have enough matches to fill out the TV show. And so they'd have these scrapyard matches and things. It was the most bizarre show in the world. But listen, don't get me wrong. I loved it. I mean, if I if I didn't do the UWA, I probably wouldn't be here now talking to you because it, it really did give me a platform at the time to be able to, to uh, express myself and get out there a little bit. And it really did do that for me. So I loved the UWA. It was great fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They do that. And then a little bit later on, as we were saying, uh, we did our last ever TV tape in Barking. I was the UWA TV champion. And I was supposed to defend the belt. So I got the microphone and I said, uh, I'm going to defend the belt, but not against you, Danny Royal. I've got a worthy challenger. Uh, this man has recently been in, uh, voted in the awards section of Power Slam <laughs> magazine. And the crowd, you can see the crowd go, oh, who is it? Is it? You know, at the time, is it is it The Rock? Is it still called Steve Austin? <laughs> and I go, voted worst ever match in history. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Monroe. And this guy saunters out. And I literally told him in the changing rooms, run at me, I'll move out the way, and I'll roll you up for the pin. So the bell rings, and he runs across and starts trying to hit me, slam me, suplex me throw me into the corner and he's a big lump of a guy and I'm trying to shoot on him to try and get him down and pin him and he wouldn't have it and I'm trying yeah. he wouldn't have it and I'm, I'm I'm not a shooter and I'm like Jesus Christ if this guy don't want pinning I'm going to have trouble here and I literally managed I, I literally had to like use all my strength and everything to get this guy on the floor and pin him down and pull I pulled his I pulled his legs over his head and held him down if you watched the video to try and pin him. Yeah, good, good, uh, good memories. Absolutely, and I, guess I was just going to say as well, uh, as you said rightly, it did a lot for your career. The the famous triple threat match, the match between you, Kerry Cabrera, and our guest today, Doug Williams. At the time, people were calling that the best British wrestling match of the modern era. Yeah, at the time, like you say, modern era, because, I mean, I hate to think that that would ever say that, you know, the best British wrestling match, because I think that's so embarrassing to some of the amazing matches that people have had in the 80s and the 70s and things. But of that time period and for exposure, because it was the only one that had been filmed properly. And bearing in mind, wrestling in the 90s, there's not much footage of it. So it was one of the few types of British wrestling that was being filmed at the time. And yeah, it was a triple threat, me, Kerry and Doug, who's coming up shortly. Um, and it was a good match at the time, a really good match. Uh, it doesn't hold up now because people have moved on to having these amazing triple threat matches. Um, but at the time, it was very good. And as I say, it really did um, give me a platform. And when the UWA folded, because literally uh, they did one more show at Barkin. And it gave up because there was, you know, there was no money to be made in British wrestling at that point in time. Um, but it went on in like another two different guises after that. It went on to be UCW and then some other things as well. But it gave me a good foot in the door. It gave me video footage to send out to America and stuff like that. So, yeah, UWA in general was a really good thing for me. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Stevie. 
And that brings us very, very nicely onto our guest for this evening. Before we introduce him, don't forget, please give us a like on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Seconds Away Pod. Make sure that you join our Facebook page. We've done really, really well on Facebook recently, so keep on adding to that. Keep sharing, subscribing through all your major podcast outlets. And ladies and gentlemen, our guest for today is only Mr. Doug Williams. So on the line, the man himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Doug Williams. How are you, my mate? I'm very good, thank you, Steve. Yourself, are you doing okay? We're all right. What about you, youngie? Are you happy, youngie? Well, yeah, we, we, we know, we carry on, but I'm happy that you're here, Doug. That's made my day. Thank you, youngie. I'm always happy to hear your voice as well. <laughs> Thanks, this, is, this is so loved up, isn't it? How yeah. is, uh, how's lockdown for you, Doug? Are you missing the gym? I'm missing the gym, yeah, just, you know, because it's routine, I think, you know what I mean? I was saying this um, earlier to the other half, um, you have a routine, you're so used to it, you enjoy you know, doing these things on a daily basis and then they're, they're taken away from you and you kind of, you know, you're at a loss, aren't you, almost? Um, I mean, I still go outside twice a day. I go to the supermarket once a day and I go out for an exercise a couple of hours in the evening. So it's not like house arrest, but it is still, it's a very strange atmosphere when you go outside sometimes. Um, but I have noticed a marked uh, increase in the last couple of days of people walking about, so it's kind of getting back to normality. For better or for worse, I'm not going to make a judgment on that. But um, it is strange. strange. What's what's, what's your um, opinion on it, Doug? Should we be locking down or should we be starting to move about a little bit more? Well, I think, um, you know, I don't think there's any big problem with people moving about and, um, you know, know, walking about outside and and going about their business if they're acting sensibly and taking taking the precautions they need to take. you know, there is always going to be a sense of personal responsibility as far as I'm concerned, and, and people have to have to do that. We shouldn't be reliant on the government to treat us all like sheep and like, uh, you know, enforce things that we as adults should be able to enforce ourselves and take sensible precautions. Um, everybody takes a risk every day going out in a car, on the road in their car, don't they? I mean, the rate of death there is high, but you, you choose to do it because you need to do, it to do what you, you're able, you want to do with your life. Same here. You know, if you want to take those risks, then, then adequately protect yourself and and, and get on with it, and, and make sure you're not you're not um, causing harm to anyone else. Spot, spot on. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think you've yeah. got a. I think it's going to do more damage to a lot of people just being stuck in a house. To be honest with you, with people's mental and physical health. To be honest. Oh, absolutely. It's it's you know it's tough on on you know. I'm strong-willed or anything like that, but I'm, I'm quite good at adapting. I've had quite an up-and-down roller coaster of a life, um, but it's still tough on me mentally and, and physically. And I live with you know, a loving family, a, a nice home, um, and it's still tough. So I can only imagine what it's like for some people in not, not so good circumstances. You know? Now, obviously, Doug, you, you are hmm. officially retired from wrestling in the UK, but I know you still do a lot of different work travelling about and things. Are you missing uh, travelling about for the wrestling? Yeah, I am. I, you know, I mean, obviously, travelling and the rest, travelling from wrestling has been a big part, a huge part of my life for, you know, 30-odd years, and um, it's, 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 I've always enjoyed it, um, always enjoyed going to different places, especially abroad. Um, so I'm certainly missing that. I'm missing people that I know when I go abroad and my friends in wrestling and, and that sort of thing. 
Um, that's a, that is a real shame, but um, it is what it is. And it only served to make me uh, look forward to it more when I, when I can start doing it again. Yeah, it was when you first kind of slow, I wouldn't say officially retired, but when you slowed down that schedule, did you quickly yeah. miss it, Doug, or at the time did you appreciate the break? No, funnily enough, I didn't miss it straight away. I had pretty much a whole year last year, 2019, pretty much a whole year I had off. Um, and I didn't miss it. I was hurting. I was injured. I was, I was burnt out. Um, I, I was looking forward to the break. And I did do. I, I did travel. You know, I was building a few things behind the scenes on a few shows here and there. But um, no, I, I, I didn't miss it. The, the, the scale and the amount of travelling I've done in the previous twenty-five years of my career at all. Okay, so yes, Doug, so you are still involved, though, with wrestling. I know a couple of nights ago we were going to do this interview and you had a Zoom chat with Ring of Honor. Uh, what are you doing with Ring of Honor? Uh, I just uh, signed with them in February to do a few shows um, because they done a, they had scheduled in March a uh, past versus present style show, which was kind of the older, you know, the, the older generation of the Ring of Honor stars against the newer generation. Um, so initially signed me to do that, and then um, also they brought back they were going to bring back the Pure Championship, um, and so I was put into a tournament for that as well. So they signed me to a, a duration deal rather than just a one-off. So um, hopefully, when things start getting up and running again, they'll, they'll, I'll actually <laughs> actually manage to get out there and, and be used by them again. Oh, so, cool. Uh, okay. So, so I'm that's. Like, so I'm you're actually going to be right, going to be wrestling again. Yeah, yeah, I just agreed to do those few. I, I think I, I, you know, um, they want me to come over and do a bit of agenting for them as well backstage and help out the lads and that. Um, not too sure yet, obviously, because I have even, haven't even managed to get out there once since being signed. <laughs> funnily enough, but um, I went through all that trauma of getting a work visa. Um, I got it in the first week of March, and I haven't been able to use it since. You know, crazy. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. It should be a, should be, it should be, it should be interesting once, once I'm actually up and running again. And I know you do some agenting as well in the UK, and obviously, if you've been asked to do agenting for Ring of Honor, it's obviously people think highly of you to do that. Explain the job of an agent away from WWE, more from the style that you'd be doing on an independent show. Um, well, it's more or less the same thing, is that in that you are given the finishes of matches from whoever's booking the show, the promoter saying you want this, he wants this, he wants that. Um, and then you can discuss with the various wrestlers their matches, what they're going to do, the story that they're going to tell, and then the finishes they have in mind to make sure that they're getting over what the booker or the promoter wants out of that show. And, and that's all it is. It's lending your experience and sending your skills in, into developing and telling the story that the promoter wants those wrestlers to tell and making sure they're actually delivering that when they go out and, and perform. Um, and it, it's pretty much the same on independent shows, really. As, as, as It's more sort of a... When you're on independent shows, it's more sort of a, a learning thing, a teaching thing where you're giving your advice to maybe younger wrestlers and giving them finishes and giving them spots that they can use in order to tell the story. Um, on, a, on a higher level, it's more of a kind of working with the wrestlers to make sure that everything they're doing is, is, is logical and fits the, the narrative that's been given to them. Do you, have you found that there's any particular kind of younger talent that you've enjoyed working with on that level? Uh, independent level or higher level? Younger. But both, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally, I've, I've been pretty lucky in that you, obviously you're assigned certain specific matches that that um, 
people feel will work you'll work best with and I've always um especially in the UK and Europe where I've done like backstage and, and agenting roles um all the wrestlers tend to listen to you in the back and, and take your <laughs> take your advice on board it doesn't always necessarily pan out when they're in the ring and they get excited and they start doing what they want to do but um yeah I've never I've never really come up against anyone who said or argued the toss with me about something you know um they always want to do too much of course don't they but Mm. Just a, a common complaint, I think, amongst us older guys. <laughs> yeah, well, the I think the irony of the um, of, you know, complaining that you, they do try and do too much is that I I was just talking to Steve about the match you had in the UWA, the triple threat match. Okay. Do you re- do you do you reckon if people of the generation before you watched that that they would be moaning that you guys did too much as well? Maybe not the generation before, but perhaps the generation before that. If you went, you know, maybe people from the 70s or so, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I mean, I'll have to watch the match over, but um, that period came in a post-ECW era, so that match is tame in comparison to what was kind of in vogue at the time anyway, really, on a global level. Um, I'm sure if you asked anyone in their 60s or 70s, wrestlers of their 60s and 70s, if they watched it, they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're doing too much, but... I don't consider that. So even I watched it now, I probably wouldn't consider it as too much at all. So we were talking about UWA. We opened up talking about UWA. Tell us okay. about your experiences with UWA. Was that your first experience with the kind of TV and things, the same as it was for me? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It was um, it was interesting um, because, like you say, Steve, I've never never had done any TV work before. That whole character development bit, you know, the skits and getting yourself over on, uh, as a character was 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 new. Um, uh, the, the wrestling shows were the same as any other show, as far as I'm concerned. We, no one there to give you any guidance on what to do in terms of a television show. You just go out there and wrestle as if it's a normal live wrestling show, really, at the time. Um, I always remember, I think it was you that told me this, Stevie, it was like... Um, something about it came along at the wrong time and, and we weren't just just weren't ready or something of that nature that you said to me at the time. Um, you obviously take it on board, but like all the wrestlers were not ready for that kind of level of television, you know, experience or exposure. Um, and you can see it when you watch it. Definitely, yeah. It was, yeah. I think, obviously, it, you had Johnny and Jody and things. Everyone, yeah. everyone was just too young, wasn't they? It was just... The, the wrong time and there was a lot of guys that went on to do really well but uh, all far too young at the time can you remember any particularly uh, mad moments from that time <laughs> um, I'm trying to I mean yeah I, I don't know if you were involved in the very first UWA show which was the Epsom uh, Epsom Forest with Dirt by Kid uh, main eventing I can't even remember who he wrestled now but I remember him having a uh, it might have been Sabu or someone of that nature but he was having a remember him having a tantrum in the dressing room afterwards. Um, and it's interesting if you carry on from that and then we go to the live TV and UWA there, how the, the dirt, bike, dirt bike kid kind of disappeared. Uh, <laughs> um, and then Phil, Phil Powers seemed to be the main man, didn't he? Um, I'll tell you what was an ex- interesting experience for me, um, Steve. I don't, I don't know if you picked up on this as well, but there definitely seemed to be two camps of wrestlers involved in that. And um, we... And when I say that, I mean, there was the likes of yourself, uh, Linsky, uh, a few others, Kerry Cabrera, who probably came from the, 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 the northern and kind of Midlands camp circuit. And there was guys like me, Johnny and Jody, and that, that came from the Hamlock kind of circuit. 
And we always seemed a little bit of tension, a little bit of wariness between the two camps of wrestlers at that time. Anyway, it always seemed that way until we really all got to know each other, I think. I think we were all very separate before that point in time, before the UWA brought a lot of us together. I don't know if you remember that kind of experience at all. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. Yeah, I, yeah. I did. To, to us, uh, I, I've learned afterwards this was not the case, but to us at the time, Hammerlock was seen as this kind of outlaw thing that had opened a wrestling school and the guys could only wrestle for Hammerlock. And it was it was kind of seen as this real outlaw place that was giving away kayfabe and all this kind of thing. And as as I look back now, it was yeah. kind of it was kind of genius. And it, it was it was actually just the first one to do what everyone's done in the end anyway. But at the time, you know, the way to get into wrestling for us was to start setting the ring up and all sure. that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but in hindsight, you know, what he did was was just what everyone's done further on down the line anyway. But the thing is, it's like I had that maybe first first year I was training with him and running running his shows. But then he just got me booked on camps in the second year anyway. So I fell into that normal training routine that everyone else did. So, for, you know, from 94 onwards, I was working all the... The you know the the Essex camps with the likes of Paul Sorrell and Blondie Barrett and Johnny Kidd and everything and uh, I just fell into that normal routine anyway. So he, he he might have started it in a different way, but he slowly pushed his guys into the circuit to make sure that they were working in, in the same way as everyone else, which I thought was quite. Looking back at it, I didn't see it that way, but it was it, it was a, a good good work a good uh, training training environment in that respect. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I've seen on Facebook today. It's ten years exactly to the day today that he passed away. Mm. Yeah, I saw that as well. I mean, I've spoken to him since 1997, or seen him even. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate, isn't it? You know, he, he wasn't aware of the legacy he's maybe left behind at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. Um, he certainly did. He, he he brought a lot of a lot of guys through uh, currently big stars, and it's. Uh, you know, is it a testament to him, his training abilities or a testament to him being the only place that a lot of people felt they could go? Um, it's probably a little combination of both, if you ask me. Now, you wrestled him on um, those very early shows that Dirtbike sure. Kid promoted. Mm. Um, and I mean, those were the first, I, I mean, I would call them internet shows because yeah. it, it was the time when I think it was the first one was just Sabu, wasn't it? Literally just Sabu, and I think you wrestled Andre on those shows. What was your memory of those? Yeah, I remember that, I mean, again, it was that, that kind of atmosphere where all the wrestlers had come from different kind of areas or different circuits, and uh, it was always very tense, but obviously some wrestling Andre, familiar with, with him, and, and, and we just went out there and had, had our normal matches. Um, I do remember that first Dirt Bike Kid show, uh, it was a tournament style thing and I think I wrestled Jackie Palo Jr. in the first round someone else and then I had to wrestle that yeah uh, Sabu had a, a guy over with him called Judge Dredd who was just like a big big tall guy that just did one move which was a choke slam and I ended up taking three of them you know what I mean it was just like crazy <laughs> um, but yeah it was just uh, it was not time in wrestling really because it was you know the business was very, very down in that kind of 97, 98, mm. 99 period. You do the camp shows, and anything over, over uh, outside the camp shows were just these weird kind of American, you know, kind of hybrid American-style British shows, you know, such as that. Um, certainly for me anyway. I know I know 
there were still normal town shows going on, but um, I hadn't broken onto those at that point in my career anyway. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that kind of that hybrid American style. Yeah. Because the thing that always stood out with you, Doug, was the fact that you 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 got you kind of made your career through doing a modified version of the British style. So mm. when when did it kind of click with you where you felt, oh, actually, if I if, if I go and work this British style, this is will this will be make me unique and individual. Oh, that was quite easy. I mean, I was booked to do that. Uh, King of Indies tournament in, in 2001 in, in San Francisco and, and then I paid a lot of attention to what can I do to make myself stand out from the other guys on the show and it, it was almost clear as day to me that I just had to wrestle as I usually wrestle and just in, employ a load of uh, British style um, techniques and, and moves in the match and, um, and that's what I did um, I was aware as was a lot of other people at that time that, that that no one saw World of Sport, no one has seen it for a period of time at that point. That's almost 10 years now. It's very hard to get hold of tapes with anything of any meaning. I had a few a few bits and pieces that I'd record that had been ironically been recorded off television at the time, you know, in 89. Um, and I, I knew I'd been trained um, and worked with a lot of guys like Bobby Brookside, Johnny Kidd, and, 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 and been put through my paces and... and, and, and picked up on a lot of routine and stuff anyway. So it just, it just kind of made sense to me to them incorporate them into, into what I was doing when I went abroad. Um, and it worked because no one had seen it before. Was that the first time you'd ever been abroad to work? Mm, good question, actually. Mm. That the show, the tournament I did in San Francisco, no. Um, I'd been to America previously and done a few shows on the East Coast. Um, but America was the first place I went abroad. I do because, believe. Okay, because obviously you, you eventually you went to kind of live out there. Um, mm. Do you kind of miss being being in America, or are you kind of glad to be home? No, not really. I mean, a lot of people say, and it's true. Visiting America is lovely, and you know, you, when you visit it, you see the America you see in all the movies. But when you live out there and you're in the day to day grind, and you're yeah, it's, it becomes routine for you. Then it's it's no different to living anywhere else in the Western world. Um, I'm not a particularly the places I lived anyway. I was not particularly a fan of those those places, um, and it was quite nice to come home <laughs> in 2013 when I did um, back to some familiar, familiarity. I can never say that word. It's one of the worst words in the world to try and pronounce. Familiar yeah. familiar familiarity. I can't just I just can't say it, so I'll I'll make sure that during the conversation I don't say familiarity. You're known as a speaker as well, Steve. I know. I'm a I'm a radio presenter. What's going on? <laughs> now, obviously, when you went to TNA, Doug, you were yeah. working with a very young Nick Aldis, who's yeah, doing uh, a good mate of mine. He's doing yes. very well for himself. Um, yes. How was TNA when you started, and what was it like working with Nick? Oh well, I mean, it's a lot of fun. We were there doing it. Um, it's peak, I'd say. Uh, they were actually making the money when we were there. Um, they put us together. We had a good time uh, working with the tag team. We just had a lot of fun with it, really. Um, obviously, Nick and Rob Terry were very, very green. Um, I knew why my job was to, uh, you know, bring them along, coach them, but also be the worker and the man that put some actions together and make sure we were a success. And I think we had some, you know, I think I was successful in doing that. Uh, that point of my career with TNA, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. 
You also, which I think is, uh, this would be what I would class as my claim to fame. Um, you wrestled <laughs> Ric Flair, didn't you, at the O2? I did in two, no, uh, no, Wembley Arena, 2011. Wembley Arena. So yeah. you, it was, that was a singles match, yeah? It was a singles match. Indeed it was, yes. yes. Gosh, imagine so, that. What was that like? Uh, it was a unique experience, as you could well imagine. Um, the great thing about it is it was so old school that, uh, you know, we didn't talk about anything except the finish. Put it that way. <laughs> and it was great. I mean, you know, he... he him being the heel in that match, um, regardless of reaction, he was always going to get a great reaction, but him being the heel in the match, he, he called it all in the ring, called all his spots. He's always quite fun. Flair calling his own spots and you're actually doing them. You know, <laughs> you watch him all these years on TV, you know, giving the backdrop out of the corner and the, he does the flare flop, we beer him off the top. It's just all those, you know, just, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was great fun, great fun. Um, um, and, uh, the crowd loved it. So what more can I say? Now, obviously, being in TNA at this point, like you say, it was really the, the peak of TNA. Sure. And they had big names backstage, a lot of old sure. WWE guys and uh, former WCW guys and things. Mm. Um, this is, I mean, you've obviously been around over your time, um, a lot of real big stars. Do you ever, we discussed this on a podcast this week, have you ever got starstruck with any of these guys or are they just work colleagues? No, they've just been work colleagues, really. It's funny. It's funny you think you will be until you actually engage with them. And then they're just another wrestler, as far as I'm concerned. You know, they're just there doing the same job as you. As I always look at it like this, Steve. They're in the same place you are. So they're not any, you know, they're not way more important. They're not any, they're not any more uh, significant than you are at that point. So um, they just became work colleagues, really. I don't think of a, a single situation where I was actually... I mean, it was fun working with Ric Flair, don't get me wrong, and that was an amazing experience, and he's a legend and everything, but when it came down to the special side of it, and when I was there, I was like, it's just another match, and uh, I'll go out there and, and do my very best, you know? Um, actually, correct me, the only time I was starstruck was probably when I wrestled Eddie Guerrero for, um, in 2002 um, on, uh, on Bravo, the uh, King of England Cup. That was... Uh, that was a star, you know, a starstruck moment for me. I think. Um, yeah, that, that's. It's funny because I was kind of going to ask something related to that as well because okay. that that kind of tied in. And I, I know the FWA was going at the time, wasn't it? But that kind of tied in with the FWA and Alex doing talk sport and th- and things like that. And it's interesting because we were talking about the FWA being the first to kind of really embrace bringing the imports in. Yeah. Um, do you, in hindsight, looking back at it now, mm. do you think the FWA had a big influence on what is now British wrestling, or do you think it was maybe a missed opportunity? Oh, no, I think it had a huge, uh, huge impact on what British wrestling is now. Um, in for regardless of anything else, a lot of the top British stars now started out as trainees or as fans watching FWA back in its heyday. Um, so they obviously gave them inspiration and, 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 and uh, to actually train and become wrestlers in their own right and then obviously become huge stars. Uh, I uh, It was before its time. Obviously, I think it, the style and what they promoted and how they promoted uh, would probably be something more befitting of today's, would probably be more successful now on a, in a long-term basis. 
but they still ran for five, six, seven years. So you can't take anything away from that. That's, that's actually a longer than a lot of promotion, promotions at that level, to be fair. No, very true. <laughs> Uh, Doug, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Flash Morgan Webster, which is a, a, a great listen, really, really okay. good. Okay. Um, and I remember you saying on there about uh, the match you had with Eddie Guerrero. And okay. at, the, at the time, you was kind of viewed as, you know, the, the best guy in Britain at the time. Uh, and you go in there and you're wrestling Eddie Guerrero. And you said that you felt completely out of your depth. Um, what was the differences? Oh, I don't know. You watch it, Stevie. He eats me right up. You can see. The differences are he knew what to do on the next step, if not several steps ahead of what I was doing. I was just following his lead. That, is, that was the difference there. And maybe it was a bit of because I was a little bit starstruck by him as well. But, um, yeah, he was light years ahead. Light years ahead. He knew exactly what he wanted to do in the next moment, in the next moment, listening to the crowd, what was going to happen. And I was just playing catch-up the whole way through. And when I watched the match, I can see it. And I, people say, oh, it's a great match. I watch it. I don't hate it, but I just think yeah, he's just eating me up here. He's just taking me apart, which is it's quite humorous now when I look back at it. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked for you because obviously you went, you, you travelled and travelled and travelled. Who sure. were some of your favourite opponents that you've worked with? Internationally? Any, anywhere. 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 Obviously, I mean, I can't. There's so many British guys I love working. You know, Flash Barker, I love working. James Mason, Robbie Brookside, um, Jody, Johnny, I love working with all those guys. Internationally, Brian Danielson, Chris Daniels, um, Joe, Samoa Joe. Um, God, there's so. All the guys of that generation, all the guys of those times, most of them were so well grounded and so well skilled. It was, it was, it was a pleasure to work. All, if not most, most guys have stepped in. I've had a few, you know, there's a few dodgy ones, but most, most of the guys I actually love working with. Uh, but, but I have to say, it's always a pleasure to work the best skilled British guys. People like James Mason, Johnny Kidd. Those are always my favourite. Always have been. Always have been. Superb. And on the same token, Doug, mm. you've also come across probably a lot of people that's had a lot of hype on the internet because mm. the the thing that used to happen was they would internationally, the international stars, they would bring over and generally it, it was like a, a train that would happen. They'd bring them over and they'd put them on with you. And that's what used to happen on a lot of the FWA shows. Was there anyone that you went on with that you thought to yourself, eh, that's not all it was cracked up to be? <sighs> Uh, maybe, <laughs> generally not on a, on the thing is the guys they brought over for me to wrestle in, in FWA uh, uh, you know uh, guys I already knew anyway um, so I didn't have any nasty surprises there uh, there's been a few uh, times I've had uh, wrestle uh, international opponents on other promoter shows that have been uh, less enjoyable so to speak um, I can think of a couple of, of, of times where I've, I've said to the promoters Please, please don't put me on this on with this guy. I just don't want to wrestle this guy. Um, and they've, uh, oh hey, guess what happened? I ended up working. With them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a red rag to a bull saying now, I think, and also because I had that reputation of making anyone look good, that it was going to happen anyway, you know. So, I was, you know, I was trying to preempt it by saying, please don't really put me on with the guy, and it ends up anyway, you know, unfortunately. It's, it's funny actually because on YouTube, I, I, I was flicking through the the guy who's uploaded all the FWA tapes onto YouTube. Yeah. 
and it was your match from with from our time from Cleethorpes with uh, Chris Hamrick. Oh yeah, it's a great match. I love that yeah, match. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. good. He's a I love hidden it. gem, I'd say that. That is, that is. Yeah, that. absolutely. He did the angle where he did the injury, didn't he? And, and the he kind of came back out. Yeah, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. I forgot. Yeah. I forgot clean about it. It was great. Yeah. Do you know someone I really enjoyed working? That I thought I'd hate working. Steve Carino. I watched really? his stuff in, yeah, because I watched his stuff in ECW, and to me, it was like, mm, yeah, he's okay, but you know, he's he's he's, he's not not anything special. But he is something special, and we had some great matches, you know. Um, and that's I learned a lot from him about psychology and storytelling and working working a good long match. Um, and he doesn't, I don't think he ever gets much credit for that sort of thing. But yeah, that working him really helped me along with those things. I really enjoyed the relatively few matches I had. I can say that I probably had a load of matches with him that I can't even remember. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I watched one the other day on YouTube. It was from WAW. It's only it must only be four or five years ago, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It brought back the memories of the stuff we did in FWA together. It was just fantastic. Yeah, it's in your busiest year, dog. How mm. many kind of matches did you wrestle in a year? What were you, I know your this, kind of busiest in your I, peak. I know this exactly because I I I, I told Ligero this. I made it his target to try and beat, but 281 matches is the most I did in one year. And that so was that's in, good yeah, 2003, that was. Yeah. That's, a, that's a five day a week all year, isn't it, basically? It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, was, that, 2003, I did the winter in Japan. So I had four tours in Japan, which I was doing five days a week on those shows. And I'd come back for the summer out of all the camp shows and all the town shows as well. And it just, you say, it just adds up. And especially, the camps, you know, you're doing two or three shows a day and you could do a double on the camps as well. So you end up wrestling four or five matches in one day. You know, it's, it's crazy, crazy times, you know. And people talk about the business being busy now and it being booming. And they might be they might be right in, 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 in average uh, audience attendances, but I would say uh, it's matched from 2000, 2003, that period as well. It was probably as busy as I've ever seen it. It took a dip. Mid mid two thousand, definitely uh, for a long period until two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. But early two thousand, you know, we were doing shows and the, the camps were always packed. You know, you'd have a thousand people at Butlins and three or four hundred at the at the at the Haven camps. But the, the town shows are drawing well as well. I do five, six, seven, eight hundred people wrestling for the like, you know, for the promoters Steve Barker, Scott Conway, Brian Dixon, those sort of people. And then FWA were drawing six, seven hundred for their shows as well. So people talk about the wrestling boom now, but in reality, I think I think it's just a lack of back then. It's a lack of uh, internet, you know, the, that that social media exposure that you get so much of nowadays wasn't there back then. People kind of forget that it was busy and it was it was kind of a a prosperous time even then. Yeah, absolutely. We did a podcast a couple of nights ago, and the, the mm. I think the 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 kid that was doing it is uh, twenty two. Um, it's okay. uh, what's the what's the podcast called, Jimmy? Uh, um, the VIP lounge with Reece VIP Ryan. lounge, and he's twenty two year old, a great lad, really nice guy, young wrestler. But I think the belief that he's got is that wrestling from two thousand to two thousand and eighteen was completely dead. There was nothing, and then it's been resurrected since you know in the last three years. No, I mean that, that, that's rubbish. It was it was kind of dead from when I got here. 93 to maybe uh, 90, 99 or so. It was kind of on the down, you know, on the down. Um, 
Uh, but from, I'd say, 2000 all the way to 2005, 2006, um, it was busy. You, you do the odd rubbish, crappy show, as, as you always, the piss pot promotion, as you always do. Um, but no, it, it was that, those early 2000s, they were generally good houses all around. And I was going to Germany then and Japan, America. You know, so I was, I, I was busier than I, I've ever been in my entire career. And, um, yeah, people say that's a fallacy, and that's just because they were too young to remember. And it's not documented as well as everything is nowadays. You know, with the internet, everything's so well documented, everything's seen so much that everybody can see that kind of and and and, and false. I wouldn't say false exposure, but that everything is made to be so much bigger than it actually is because of the, the exposure it gets through the internet nowadays. Whereas that just didn't, obviously just didn't happen in the early two thousands. It just wasn't there to be recorded or seen on a global level. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned you mentioned Japan there. I know that sure. uh, even from speaking to you before uh, you managed to get to Japan, that was something you always wanted to do. Did it live up to your expectations? Oh God, yeah, it was it was it's fantastic. You know, be treated like an actual professional athlete um, and uh, wrestle in in world class arenas and world class rings against. World class talent was 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 a dream come true. It was it was, and I'm not going to complain about the money either. Because the money was fantastic too, so um, yeah, it was everything I expected. Um, and I was obviously fortunate too that I was picked up by a major. I went there for a major promotion um, with Noah that had recently split from All Japan at that point. So I was very familiar with all the all the workers there. Watched tapes and uh, was uh, I, I knew a lot of them anyway. Um, I, I mean, I, I knew who they were. I didn't, I didn't ever met met a lot of them, but um, it was it was a real fun experience for me. Uh, and, and a big learning experience too. So you uh, won the NOAA tag team titles while you was in Japan as well with um, yeah. Scorpio. And, and I know a lot of people will be interested to know this. Um, how big is his dick? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Steve, I wasn't on the receiving end of it because I was his tag team partner. So, uh... <laughs> but you must have heard a few screams or something. <laughs> Maybe. Are the walls that thin in the Japanese hotel rooms? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I tried it, not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's flummoxed for words. <laughs> we've, we've got him there. So in Japan, was the wrestling, uh, would, would, is, is it a completely different style? Or, I mean, we'll talk about obviously what we did shortly because that's, that's okay. the highlight of my career, obviously. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, did you um, did you find the style was more lent towards the British style, American style, or has it got its own completely different style? Oh, you see, I was brought there out there for a specific reason, and that was to be the British wrestler, you know, and their troupe of travelling, uh, you know, in the travelling carnival of the of, of pro wrestling. Noah, I'm the guy that goes out there and does the British wrestling moves and. You know, the cool thing about the first tour I did for them is they put me in there with their older guys in singles matches. So I was wrestling like their uh, lower card veterans who were like in their 40s and 50s. And we just go out there and do these really wacky kind of British style matches because <laughs> they all love to do that, that kind of, I hate calling it chain wrestling, that, all that whole, you know, whole, whole kind of, um, kind of style. And, uh, you know, that was really enjoyable for me. And it was a surprise as well, because obviously everyone, when they hear about Japan, they think they yeah, just beat the shit out of each other. It's not the case at all. You know, that's just a case of people watching the, the big televised 
arena shows and thinking that's what their style is. And that's what their style is on the big televised arena shows. But when you're doing the house shows, when you're doing the tours, they just work the same as everybody else, you know. <laughs> they, they, just, uh, they just go out there and have fun like we all do. Am I right in thinking as well that you, you were, towards the end of your Noah run, you were helping get um, the foreign talent over to there as well? You were, you were recommending, recommending or like being an agent or some sorts? No, I was helping Noah talent getting booked in England. Ah, okay. okay yeah, yeah, I didn't help anyone get out to Noah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, not that they'd have, I don't think they'd listened to me either way, really. They, you know, they were in quite a, uh, you know, they, they listened to me on to, you know, kind of British promoters they should work with or who they should put their, their Noah guys with. But I can't think of any, I mean, since I since I left, the only British guy I worked there, I think, is Zach Zach Zaber anyway. Um, uh, so, uh, who came independently of me? I might have said something. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But um, in, in in that case, Doug, did you yeah. get heat with the boss um, when <laughs> he found out he was working Steve Knight? <laughs> you know what, Steve? I was trying. I was racking my brains, and I can't remember if I had asked you to be my tag partner for that. I don't know if you know. On that show, I swear they gave me a list of guys that were on the show. And they asked me who I wanted to be my tag partner. I picked you, and I'm, that's a story I'm sticking with. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, what, it makes no sense. I don't understand the logic of it being any other, other reason why they put you on in there. You know, I must have said, "Yeah, I have Stevie as my tag partner." You know? I have no idea. It was so no. random because at the time, yeah. it, oh, okay. So backstory. Um, me and Doug wrestled, um, what's he called? Yoshinari Ogawa yeah, uh, yeah. and Misawa. And yeah. for those not familiar with Misawa, he's like one of like what the top five biggest names in, in Japanese wrestling ever. Easily. Easily. Uh, easily. And um, we ended up doing a tag match, me and Doug against these two guys in yeah. a village hall in Scotland in front yeah. of about 80 people. Um, and at the time, I was I was like the comedy guy in FWA on the TV show. Uh, Doug's one half of the GHC Tag Team Champions. And we ended up doing this match. Um, and it was just the most bizarre thing to ever happen to me, to be honest with you. Youngie was there doing the ring announcing. It was, yeah. And, was um, okay. yeah, Youngie was, yeah, Youngie was doing the ring announcing. In fact, there's, there's a very funny story backstage. Tell us the story about me backstage with Misawa. Okay, before I do that, I want to take a step back and say, you know, I know you mentioned this on a previous podcast about about this this particular match and how the, what their reactions must have been like when they turned up at this hall. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that my reaction was the same because obviously I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Where we were going, it was it was it was Alex Shane that had obviously booked all these shows around his his big international showdown show. Um, but I knew the promoter at the time, whose name I won't mention for obvious reasons, a Scottish Nonsense. promoter. Nonsense. And um, <laughs> so I knew he ran reasonable, half-decent shows that I've done for him before. But when I turned up at this hall, this, I was like, oh, my God, really? What are the Japanese going to think about this? <laughs> but then I thought, hold on a second. Hold on a minute. Half the shows I work in Japan that we work in front of, like, we're working in, in community halls. Or one time I even wrestled in the middle, middle of a forest. And in a bad <laughs> hospital in Japan, I thought, no, they don't, they're not going to care. They won't, they'll just go out there and they'll just enjoy themselves as usual. Um, so, yeah, that was my immediate reaction. Um, the story's backstage, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just the one about um, we're all sitting there and 
you know, nothing's really been said or anything. And Mazar suddenly stands up, he strolls <laughs> over to you, and he kind of, he's just looking at you sternly, and you turn around to me, he goes, what does he want? I went, he wants to talk about the match, Steve. And you're like, oh, right, <laughs> And just, uh, and then it carried on from there, really, but uh, just... Uh, it was the way he just, he kind of just stood and stared at me. He, he yeah. didn't say a word. And I was like, what What does he want? <laughs> what does he want? And, like, and he, he must have stood there staring at me for like at least a minute. And he didn't yeah. say, and the guy obviously could speak English, couldn't he? Because during the match, he was speaking English to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So like, so he was working the whole gimmick. But like, we did we, we did the match and the match was fine, wasn't it? They, yeah. you, could, you could see the first couple of moves, they like tensed up whenever I was going to do something because they didn't know me. Right. And then after they realized that I was I was fine, they were they were absolutely fine. And yeah. then after, afterwards, we were we were good as gold. And if you remember, after after that show, we we all travelled. You was in the car with the Japanese, and then there was me and Youngie, and we like drove, I think, for like seven hours or something to oh, Wales. I, or something no, like. no, no. We went no. to we went to Carlisle. Yeah, we stayed. Yeah, 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 Carlisle. Yeah. 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 My so God, it's, still, it's still a good four hours from where we were. Oh, yeah. it's a hell of hell of a hell of a weekend. And then yeah. the next day was the show at um, Coventry, wasn't it? Yeah. At yeah. Skydome. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Say, um, of all the foreigners they were at that tour, Stevie, you, their agent told me that you they enjoy working with you the most. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass there. They told me that. They they, 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 they told me that. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah they told me that. And and I I, uh, I hang my hat on that. Yeah, they told me at uh, the Skydome yeah. um, before, the, before the match... Um, that they'd ask me to, they'd asked if I could go in the match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I tried to explain that that really wouldn't work for this audience. <laughs> 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 it really would not work. But I, you yeah. know, I could, I could have raised up to it. But yeah, no, I'd, I'd have preferred not to. I'd have preferred yeah. doing a bit of comedy in the first match. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good times, great, yeah, great it was, times. It was, yeah. So obviously, when you went off and you we're, we're jumping all over the place, but who cares? We're just having a bit of bit of banter. We're not we're not doing a career retrospective here. Absolutely. When you when you was in TNA, Doug, yeah, um, you started off great guns and everything, and then it kind of fell apart towards the end, didn't it? Yeah. But, um, was that was that Hogan and Bischoff coming in, or was it was it other problems? Yeah, it's a little bit of that. I think um, you know. It's a combination of many things. First of all, um, I would say the three guys that backed me, the three guys that, that were on my side, all kind of left in quick succession. Um, once Hogan and Bischoff arrived, um, specifically Terry Taylor, um, Jeff Jarrett, and, and, and Vince Russo, all, you know, they were all kind of deemed to be my guys or, or guys on my side, and I think that didn't help me with the new management. Um, but from my side as well, and you know. Um, I didn't help myself because I got to a position where I was comfortable. I was the exhibition champion. I was, ha- I was having quite a good run. So I didn't really, I wouldn't say step up, but I don't think I really kind of made any effort with the new management team to try and get myself over and put myself, you know, and really work hard for them and show them what I could do. I was just kind of, uh, here I am. I'm, 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 I'm already exhibition champion. You can see what I'm doing. I'm just going to carry on. And um, I think it was just kind of the combination of those two things. I just, didn't see anything in me and, and, and I didn't push for anything either. I wasn't always in their faces saying, what about this? Can I do this? Can I do that? Um, and that kind of hurt it. You know, that, that certainly hurt my chances as well. But um, combination of both those things, really. Um, 
other things I don't know, but that was that, that was that that's how I saw it. I think how I, I mean when I was there and it was happening, it was definitely oh they don't like me because um, I'm a Vince Russo guy and they don't like Russo because he's gone now. They they you know they've lost no interest in me whatsoever. When I look back at it now, it's like well I wasn't I didn't push for anything either. I just got myself stuck in a rut and I wasn't. I was just stubborn. I was just going to do my own thing and, and, and not not push for any change. I wasn't pushing for a, doing more TV. I wasn't pitching any angles for myself. I was just sitting back and, and letting things play out. And, and in that environment, at that level, it's, that's a very, very bad thing to do. I think when you had Nick Aldis on and he talked about, you know, there being sides and people, uh, you know, it's like a dog, dog fight out there and, and you've got to fight for yourself all the time. It, and that atmosphere was very prevalent in TNA, especially towards the end, he was saying. Well, it was prevalent when I was there as well, and probably at a greater level too, because everybody was trying to impress Hogan. Everybody was trying to impress Bischoff, trying to get on the top spots. And me just sitting back and, and taking it easy probably didn't help my cause at all, you know. Um, so I just sat at home, <laughs> moaning about the fact I wasn't being used, but not doing anything about it either. So, hey. Is, is, that, a str- is that a strange feeling, Mike? Mm. Being being contracted to somewhere, you're still getting paid, but not being used. Like, I, it's it, how does that feel from a worker's in any other job? Any in any other job, people would think yeah. that's the dream, wouldn't they? They're being sat there getting paid for nothing. Wrestling's not like that. Yeah, it'd be fine if they're paying me a million a year to sit at home, youngie. But when they pay me an absolute minimum and my money's all made up, I say a minimum. You know, like I was getting a downside, probably a three or four thousand a month, which is decent. But um, when I could have been earning seven, eight, nine, ten thousand a month doing the extra shows as well, that's when your bitterness kind of seeps in a little bit, and um, you know it just it just uh, it does grade on you. And it's you want to be out there working, you want to be out there having fun, you know, being with your mates on the road and 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 wrestling and and and, you know sitting at home playing video games and binge watching you know TV series is not what I. Not, not what I signed up to do, and you get forgotten as well. That duration yeah. of time you're sitting out doing nothing, you're not on TV, you're not working shows, you get forgotten about. So it's a killer on your career as well. Absolutely. Um, and and you're aware of all that time. And it's you know mental health wise, it's 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 horrible from that perspective. You know? No, I remember when I first did the podcast. Look, I interviewed yeah. you back in 2017. You'd, you'd not been back too long, mm. um, and. Listening to what you're saying now is you've got a very different perspective. You've obviously really looked back on this and thought about it. Is okay. this a is this a regret you've got now? Oh uh, yeah, regret. Yeah, maybe a little bit, not so much. It's a learning experience as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's um, TNA was was it was as I said that part of it was me, but a part a large large part of it was the change in management structure. The, you know, refocusing on on people they considered more important. Um, I the only thing I like to do, and I said it on um, Flash Morgan Webster's podcast as well, is this this little run with Ring of Honor that's going to happen eventually once the virus goes away. Um, is a little bit of uh, help for redemption, really, and, and reminding the American fans of who I am and what I can do, and just hoping that you know that that my uh, ending with TNA is what they not what they remember before. Um, so that'll be. Uh, once I, once I get back over there and, and show them again, hopefully that will be uh, remind them. Well, um, it'll put my mind at ease as well about about the whole American 
situation and how it ended for me in, you know, in the first time. I, I know probably, uh, obviously, you're feeling that in, in your own mind, but mm. um, on the last mention of you, I, I guess, on w, on any, sorry, American TV was mm. Bruce Pritchard putting you over on WWE TV, which is, uh, like that, that must have been a surprise and a pleasant one at that. Yeah, it was. Well, and I'd, uh, someone's recently sent me a clip of Eric Bischoff doing the same thing, actually, on a podcast. Um, but as I say, this is these are the things like that that you mentioned, Youngie, that made me understand that, it, it was me as well. It was me not pushing myself. It was me not going and forcing myself down their throats and saying, listen, you know what I can do? Why am I not being used? What, you know, these are the things I can do for you. So I could see that they did have, they did have you know, a high regard for me, but there was a list of other guys that were in their ear that were you know, of equal standing, if not better, um, or, or forcing themselves and putting themselves in positions to be, to be used by those guys. So maybe that's how I can see in retrospect that it was. A lot of this was on myself as well. A lot of it came came from my end, which maybe back in 2017 I didn't see it that way, Stevie, and that's what's changed, you know. Yeah, well, it's just, it's good. It's good. I think time is is something you do look back on. That I look mm-hmm. back on, on on my whole thing as, and I realise I I I think I'm not bitter per se because I look back at my whole wrestling career and. See that I I wasn't dedicated, you know I I wasn't I didn't I didn't stay fit I didn't see anything like that so I can look back at the whole thing and see that it it was me that wasn't dedicated and that that's that's my my doing so I think yeah. it, it, and time is an interesting thing to look back on and you've got to look back on the positives at the end of the day it's like got to travel the world get paid to do it I saw these amazing places had a lot of fun I'm not going to really complain about that you know <laughs> it's uh focusing on the, the few negative things in my career is, is, is not healthy and um, luckily I figured that out a few years ago so it's all good Now Doug you say you're going to go to Ring of Honour and you want to finish off on a, a high note or a, a finish off on what you believe um, show people what you're actually capable of doing mm. um, how old are you now Doug? I'm 25 Stevie <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm 47, almost 48. So, physically, how mm. are you to be able to go out and do these? What you want to be able to show what you could do? Uh, well, I had neck surgery last year. I retired in 2018, and, and the reason for that was I did have a lot of injuries. I wanted to spend more time at home. You know, I thought I'd done everything I needed to, do and, and 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 it was fine. But I had neck surgery, um, which was a great help, really, um, and. Physically, uh, I pretty I feel pretty great apart from my knees are knackered, uh, but not so not so much that I can't can't get up and down and with adequate padding and adequate strappage on my knees, I'm I'm generally okay. And it, it, the irony of this coronavirus thing is that from January through to to when I was meant to debut for Ring of Honor, I got myself into probably the best shape of, of my life, even up to that point at this age, um, and I was raring to go. Um, and now I'm back to being a fat slob for not training for a lot. <laughs> Never mind. I, th- I think your definition of a fat slob and, and me looking at me and Steve looking at each other right now is probably a very different definition. Uh, I feel uh, the, the, the Steve's one, never looked better on camera. Well, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. But the last thing I wanted to kind of speak to you about was the, the career closer over here because mm. you, you, we, we talked about Wembley earlier. And you got to essentially finish your career at Wembley Arena. Now, 
The one thing I think you, you, you could be really proud of, or I hope you're really proud of, is the fact that a lot of love from the British industry got shown to you over that retirement period of time. In hindsight, yeah. when you look back about and you see how much respect people have got for you, Doug, that must make you really proud. Oh, yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. And that's, you know, to me, that's my kind of lasting legacy, isn't it, of my career is, is the influence I think I've had on, on British wrestling and the British wrestlers. And, and that was really shown through, especially in that 2018 run I had, um, where I essentially did my retirement tour, not just in progress, but around the around the circuit, working with different promoters, um, you know, who wanted to book me in what was my, my last year of working in the UK. Um, and, it, yeah, you're absolutely right, Youngie. I, I couldn't be any, any, any proud of that. And uh, the kind of uh, respect and, and, and that I was shown that period, you know, it was, it was, it was touching. <laughs> um, all things considered, because I wasn't really aware of, you know, how much I influenced it or what people thought of me to that point, to some degree, but not, not to, to the extent that it was shown in that, in 2018, during that time, you know, no, I, was fully, a, I was just a wrestler like everybody else, as far as I was concerned, you know. No, we fully really deserved, and we, me and Steve love you, um, but the, uh, <laughs> the fight, but obviously we didn't love you that night in Morecambe, um, we talked about it the last <laughs> time on our last podcast, and you spoke about it on Cabana's podcast as well, yeah. um, did we get the story, or did we justify the story last week, or is there anything you feel that we got wrong and you need to correct us on? The only thing I think, well, you kind of, in, in my mind, from what I remember, we didn't actually get into any kind of brawl per se. I do remember that Stevie gave me the nod, and then we were up and out of there. But as we were leaving, that's when the chair came. So we were like, oh, fuck it. So we turned, and before anything even got started, the bouncers pounced on throw through those guys out. Then we did, and then then you picked up the story when you said, yeah, we all left, and there was this one guy left, and he was thrashing about, throwing these dustbins about outside. And then when he yes. saw us all come out, he like he was like shit, and he fucked off. <laughs> um, but I don't remember any, anything physically inside because the bouncers were all over and boom from the word go. Um, that's a bit boring. That's the, yeah, that, sorry. That, so, your, uh, can, can you uh, not like? Hey, fame, Doug. Jesus Christ! Can we not have it where you back suplex someone through a cigarette machine or something like that? Uh, I've got a few stories like that, but um, not that in particular. I'm afraid, unfortunately. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> nothing like making the story less interesting, is there? Jesus, yeah, we've been, we've been dining out on that one. <laughs> we'll, 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 edit, we'll, we'll edit that bit out, I think. Jesus Christ. <laughs> You know, you're you know, the, the you know the part about Stevie, um, you know, clocking on straight away and knowing exactly what was going to go down was spot on because he gave me the eye, he looked at me, and I was like, okay, I think mean, it is time to go, Stevie. And you're right, yes. Yeah. So we stood up, and as we were walking towards the door, that's when the chair came, um, you know, came flying. Maybe there was a few uh, few punches thrown. Who knows? But uh, I didn't get hit. I know that. Thank you very much to Doug Williams who joined us this evening. Great guest, great chat, great friend. He's a good lad, isn't he, Doug? Uh, please, yeah, pleased to have him on. He, he's well, he's out of the generate out of the generation from the kind of early two thousands onwards. He is he's been the true ambassador of British wrestling, uh, worldwide star, and a lovely man. And so we're pleased to have him on board. And thank you very much for joining us. Um, and if you can do us a favour, if you could rate, review, subscribe, 
that will be greatly appreciated on all the major podcast outlets, Google, Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of them. Any Anywhere you can find a podcast, you will find Seconds Away. So if you could do that for us and also as well, join our Twitter page at Seconds Away Pod and our Facebook page as well as we keep telling you. Steve Knight, big guest next week. Tell them all about it. Yeah, really good. I'll tell you about him in a second. Another good podcast you should listen to as well. Completely different to anything else. Uh, very strange, very bizarre. But I actually found myself chuckling away to it. And it's our mate Carl Conroy's podcast. Uh, and it's bizarrely called Is It Shane Ritchie? Um, and it's another new podcast that started. And it is very different. Uh, Carl is, by his own admission, a journeyman wrestler um, that went around the UK. <laughs> Uh, and he tells some really funny stories. Uh, like I say, it's different to this one, but you'll enjoy it, so check that one out as well. Now, as for next week's guest, I'm really excited about this one um, because this guy has been absolutely everywhere from a career from the 1960s right through to around 2010. Uh, when I say everywhere, I mean literally every nook and cranny of the world, New Japan, America, everywhere. Uh, probably the most popular British heavyweight ever. Uh, Tony St. Clair is coming on the show. It's a great get for the show. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited to hear some Tony's stories. Yeah, absolutely. Massive admirer of his work. A bit like kind of what Doug is, Doug Williams is in the last 10 years. Tony was a ambassador for British wrestling. He was somebody who travelled the world, Europe, Japan, America, and flew the flag for Great Britain. So a really fantastic guest. I don't think he's done any of these. So this is this will be a really good exclusive for us. Super, super excited to speak to Tony. We're, we're talking to him on Tuesday night, so uh, that'll be out this time next week. So enjoy that one. Uh, that's it from us for this week. Hope you enjoyed Doug. Uh, Doug's a great guy, and I'm sure he'll be on the show again. Uh, but for now, have a good week. Till next week, be seeing you. Seeing you.